Hey guys, welcome back to the Dad Tired Podcast. If you're just stumbling upon us for the first time, welcome. We're glad that you're here. We're just a bunch of normal dudes who are trying to figure out what it looks like for us as men to fall in love with Jesus and then help our families do the same. If that resonates with you, we'd love to have you join our community. We've got a totally free online community of like-minded men. If you go to dadtired.com, click the community tab, you can join us today. Again, that's totally free. Before we jump in, I want to thank my friends over at Samaritan Ministries for sponsoring today's episode. Two quick questions for you as we start here. Uh, The first is, how are you paying for your family's health care? And the second is, how is that working out for you? If it's working perfectly, great. You don't have to listen anymore. But if not, uh, listen closely because we do have a solution, a biblical solution. It's called Samaritan Ministries. Samaritan Ministries is a community of Christians paying one another's medical bills. It's not insurance, but it is assurance that you're part of a healthcare sharing community where members care for one another spiritually and financially when a medical need arises. Here's how it works. There are no networks, so when a medical need arises, you get to choose the healthcare provider that's right for you and your family, and you have a say in the type of treatment they receive. You'll send your medical bills to Samaritan Ministries and they'll notify fellow members to pray for you and to send money directly to you to help pay those bills. When another member has a medical need, they'll do the same for you. And when another member has a medical need, you'll do the same for them. This is what biblical healthcare sharing looks like. It could be more affordable than what you're currently paying now. And if it's the right fit, you can even join today. You can learn more by going to SamaritanMinistries.org forward slash dad tired. Again, that's SamaritanMinistries.org forward slash dad tired. Matt, super excited to be with you today, man. For the audience who may not be familiar with you, tell us who you are and what you're up to these days. My name is Matt Furkovic. I'm a dad, first off, and a husband. My daytime job, um, I'm a police officer. I've been a police officer for going on 12 years. Two-time canine handler, been deputy U.S. marshal, worked with some federal agencies for a period of time pretty involved in my church. Um, and now I run a nonprofit, which is a pretty interesting new aspect to my life. Yeah. I'm super excited to talk about that, but I want to give like backstory to how you and I met. Mm-hmm. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. I was, so I got asked to speak at a youth camp. La- how many, was that two summers ago? A summer and a half ago? I think it was two summers. I think it was two summers. Everything, everything blurs. Maybe it was a year and a half, I think, because I think we've had one speaker since you. Okay. So a year and a half. A year and a half ago, got asked to speak at this youth camp, which I haven't talked to youth in like at least 10 years. So I was super nervous. I'm like, I don't know. Do I try to be cool and funny? Do I try to be like hip? <laughs> which I didn't do any of that because I knew I wouldn't be able to pull it off. But anyway, it was super powerful. That was one of the highlights of that year for me because um, God just moved in really amazing ways yeah. with those young students. But during one of the days, so I was there by myself for a week left the family. And so I was missing the family hard. That was a big reason I was like hesitant to go because I usually yeah. I just speak for like, I'm gone for a day. But that was a whole week and I was like, I was missing the family super hard. So I remember about midweek, I had seen you around the campus, but midweek you were in line with your family to go to, I don't know, what were you, lunch or dinner lunch or, lunch or something, yeah. Yeah. So I'd like just in mainly selfishly, just because I miss my family so much and I was like living my life through your family, seeing you as a dad with your girls and they were about the same age as mine were. So I just introduced myself to you, start talking to your kids, start talking to your wife and you and dude, immediately, I mean, you know this, but it was so weird. Like I, yeah. I don't remember the first thing we talked about, but right away I was like, this guy's a cool dude. He's a cool, oh, I remember what it was. Your daughter, who's the same age as my daughter, her name's Ella. 
Yeah. And my daughter's name is Ella. And I'm like, dude, that's no way. What the heck? Are they the same age and they got the same name? And then you have another little girl who's the same age as mine. And then your wife's a nurse and my wife's a nurse. And then we just started talking about like all kinds of things that we're into. And it was like one of those movie moments. I'm like, bro, are you my best friend? Like, yeah. It's like went down a checklist of all the things I'm interested in. I was like, oh, check. Yeah. That's, yeah. We, we jive there. We jive there. Yeah. It was so weird, man. I went back to my room. It sounds so like I'm trying to be more manly. I'm trying not to, I'm trying to be manly in my way of describing this. But I went back to the we, room. We and fell I in love, dude. Wife. We <laughs> fell in love, you know, immediately. I called Layla. I'm like, I literally just met my best friend. That's what I told her. I'm like, I literally just met my best friend. And yeah, she dude, same. Laughing. But we had just moved into a new house out here in South Carolina. Literally, I think we got the keys like the week before I came out there to that camp or something. And while we were there, because you and I ended up hitting off and I was like, why you guys should come to South Carolina? I don't know why visit. I did that, dude. That's not me at all to be like, yeah, <laughs> let's go across the country and go to South Carolina. Insane. Well, what was crazy is you were literally our first visitors out of all our friends, all of our family, everyone. Like, the Oh, first I didn't even know that. People, yeah. The first people to ever come out and hang out with us at our house uh, was strangers that I met at some camp. Yeah. I will all say this, say. man. I, I'm going to give you your flowers for a second because you deserve it. I'm skeptical. I'm a cop at heart, you know? So yeah. I normally get pretty skeptical around, I don't want to say religious people, but you, you hear so many horror stories and getting to come down to your house and seeing you interact with your kids and seeing you interact with your wife. It's, this isn't, you know, dad tired isn't just a thing that you teach. It's a thing that you do in a way that you live. And for the guys that don't get the opportunity to meet Jared personally, he is who he says he is. He does what he, you know, he practices what he preaches. And I'm thankful not only that you're my friend, but to have that, that godly influence in my life and to have a guy that, you know, when you go through something traumatic, you know, you're one of the first phone calls that I made. It's so weird that, you know, that's only like, that was probably like a year into our friendship, but you yeah. know, like hit you up after one of the most traumatic moments in my life. And, you know, it's like, like we known each other for a hundred years, you know? Mm. Dang, man. Well, you are the guest of the show. You're the star. So, but that means a lot to me, man. I really believe I, last week I talked about on the podcast, I talked about like just being sensitive to the Holy spirit and really trusting like that the God of the universe lives inside of you. And so mm -hmm. just like, it's not just Jared wandering around or Matt wandering around, but it's God inside of us using us as his vessels yeah. And I really believe like he strategically had us meet for a reason, like I did too. bigger stuff for his kingdom, even in hindsight with the stuff we're going to talk about today, like just seeing the way God has continued to not just grow our friendship, but way beyond our friendship and like other people's lives. Yeah. But I don't know. I just like really believe in God's sovereignty that he knew I needed you as a friend, but he also knew the world needed like all the stuff that was going to come out of that friendship. It's bizarre that all that happened from a camp in Oklahoma. Totally. Yeah, I just really believe, man, God is, um, he's orchestrating all of that stuff. But I mean, we haven't even been friends for that long, even though it feels like we've been best friends our whole lives. But shortly after we met and, you know, you came and spent some time out here and we vacationed together with our families, you did go through, you alluded to it just a second ago, but you went through a pretty traumatic, yeah. you know, situation. I know it's probably sensitive with law enforcement stuff, but can you share with us as much as you're able to? What yeah. happened? Yeah. So, um, like I said, I've been in law enforcement for almost 12 years. And during that time, I'd been exposed to a pretty wide variety of things, man. I've been on just about every call that you can imagine. You know, I, I did high research warrants and all kinds of other stuff. And to be honest, it was just like another normal day at work. I think actually I was on a call whenever this call first came out. I was like clearing a building, I think, with my dog. We had like a, 
building that was unsecure and the emergency contact for the building. So nobody's supposed to be in there. So we were there for a short period of time. I cleared the building with my dog and I heard this, this call come out over the radios, uh, kind of like a crisis intervention call. It was like a, a suicidal and homicidal guy. We get a lot of those. So I work for a suburb just outside of St. Louis. So St. Louis is a pretty rough area. So we get a lot of these calls and I didn't really pay too much attention to it at first. Um, I just kind of like kept doing my thing, put my dog up, sat in my car and it was shortly after the call came out, they said that the suspect wasn't actually there. So I kind of just, they sent a car to point that way to go make, check in on the family, make sure everything was all right. And you know, I finished up that call and I was getting ready to leave. And I'm not exactly sure how this happened, but I think one of our dispatchers recontacted the caller and it's by the grace of God that she did because by that time, the suspect had actually shown up to the house. He was armed. He was trying to kick in the front door of the house. So I'm a canine handler, so we go to every hot call. You know, if there's a propensity for violence, the dog could be used in that situation. So I quickly realized that this was a real deal call. So flipped on the lights, flipped on the sirens, and pointed that way. Um, and as I was going there, our dispatchers were in contact with the family, and then they had an open line. So for a period of time, nobody was answering the phone. Uh, the phone went down, and they could hear a bunch of screaming over the line, and then they started hearing gunshots. So as I was arriving, that was kind of our last communications with our dispatchers. So my first uh, instinct was get the family out of the house. So somehow our, our dispatchers were able to regain communication with the family and, and try and get them out of the house. So I arrived on scene. I, Sorry to interrupt you. So right at this stage in the situation, are you like, are you in full mechanical mode, just like full training? Are you numb? Are you praying? Like, what are you um, thinking? As you're pulling up to a scene like this, you know, I don't. A lot of times I pray to be as weird as that sounds. You know, a lot of times I have like a quick conversation with God, like, hey, keep me and my boys safe. You know, that we're going into something that could be really dangerous. Keep me and my boys safe. And that's about the extent of the prayer, you know, it's just kind of touching base real quick. And that's kind of how I try and think about my relationship with God in general is I just want to keep that umbilical cord, you know, like stay in communication all the time. So a lot of times I'll pray. And then you kind of switch into a different mode. So you go from the normal everyday mat to everything you've been trained to do. You spend a lot of time getting better at this job and working on tactics and working on everything else. And you kind of switch gears a little bit where you go from the guy to this is my job and this is what I'm supposed to do. And you start thinking about, okay, well, what's the next step? And for me, the next step was getting the family out. I, I need to get the family out of the house as fast as possible. Number one, I need to keep them safe. And number two, I don't want to have a deadly force encounter inside of a house that I have no understanding of. I don't know the layout of the house. Tactically, I'm at an extraordinary disadvantage because I don't know anything about this place. I've never been here before. So that's kind of where, you know, you switch gears and you go from being the human to the, to the police officer and you kind of set aside your own, I think we kind of compartmentalize things. So we kind of set aside like our own safety and everything else. And you kind of put a different, put a different cape on, I guess, or you know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. you kind of shift gears there. So that's what we did. So I made contact with my dispatcher and said, hey, we need to get these people out of this house. So as I was arriving, they were able to regain communication with the family and able to get them out. So as I showed up, I grabbed a rifle from my car and I started running down the street towards the house. And as I was arriving, the family was backing out of the house. Um, so me and a couple of the guys that are with, we made sure that the suspect wasn't inside the car. We cleared the car and then we got them out of there as soon as we could. From that point, things really slowed down. We knew nobody else was in the house other than the suspect. So 
our goal is not to be involved in any, you know, use of force if we can not. So we slowed things down. Uh, we set up a perimeter, started communicating with a couple guys on scene about, okay, well, what's the next step? Can we get a drone in the air so we can kind of see the layout and just working through the process to make our response as good as we can. So that's what we did. We set up a perimeter. It was really cold. It was November and November in Missouri is it can get chilly. The wind was really whipping that day. Um, it was really, really cold outside. So we were outside, obviously. So everybody's kind of freezing and they contacted the SWAT team. And for a period of time, there's almost this moment of calm where the suspect had went back inside the house. I've been on so many barricades, you know, hundreds probably, maybe not hundreds, but a lot. So Do you have any communication with the suspect at this point? We did not. That was one thing that we worked on too, is getting a negotiator in contact with them. And they tried that. And I will say that it didn't go well. Um, there were some threats made towards law enforcement through those communications and, you know, indicating that he wasn't going to cooperate with the process pretty much. So I think we were outside for uh, quite a long time. Actually, I had a new guy with me and it was so cold that day. His hands froze. Like his hands were stuck like this. He turned around and he says, Matt, and his hands were like frozen and they're shaking. They're like purple. Oh, oh my gosh. Um, yeah. So it was a really, really cold day. So we called, I called him back to me. I told him to put his hands in his pants, which, you know, looking back, it's a little weird, but I knew it'd warm his hands up. So <laughs> yeah, we did yeah. that. And then I can't even remember how much time had passed. It seemed like an eternity because it was so cold outside. And like I said, the negotiations weren't going very well. We found out that his dad had been shot, non-life-threatening. And you could just kind of tell that things weren't going to go well. So the SWAT team was called out. Uh, they were staging trying to get guys up to the scene to kind of, so we could switch roles because we had been out for outside for so long and it was cold. So as the SWAT team got ready to come up and relieve us, it was actually, they were in the process of coming up to relieve us. The suspect walked outside of the house with a gun. We gave him a bunch of commands to drop it. He didn't. And then there was an exchange of gunfire and he passed away. He didn't survive. And luckily all of us were safe by the grace of God, you know. I wasn't hit and none of the guys with me were hit. So that's a really long story summed up in a really short period of time. There's a lot of yeah. details there that, that I yeah. kind of moved past pretty quickly, but that's kind of the, the gist of it. I remember you saying, you know, you were in such like just training mode, like your brain had switched over into just doing what you had been trained to do, but that mode kind of broke or you came out of that mode when you made a phone call to your wife. Yeah. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I was really... You know, I was concerned. I know that everybody has social media these days. I knew that my wife, I knew that the news would be on this story pretty quickly. I knew that it would be all over social media relatively quickly. So I wanted to get in contact with my wife pretty quickly because I didn't want her to find out anything that happened through somebody else, you know? Yeah. Sorry. Um, so I asked the guy to go get my phone, which I left in the car on accident. And I was able to call my wife and that's, that's kind of where you switched out of that mode again, you know? So you go from being the police officer and doing what the police officer is supposed to do to the dad and the husband and the human. And as soon as I heard her voice, that's when it switched over. That's when I made that switch. So I tried my best to get the words across to her and let her know that I was okay, that I was going to be going to the hospital, but I was fine. Um, let her know that I was involved in a in an officer-involved shooting. And, you know, I didn't talk about any circumstances or anything like that with her because, number one, it's not really important to her at that time. 
And then number two, you know, they really don't want you to talk about a lot of the stuff that's going on right away. It was a really brief conversation. It was probably a 30, 40 second conversation. I think she could feel the emotion in my voice and I could definitely feel the emotion in her voice. And uh, so I let her know what hospital I was going to. They threw me in an ambulance with a, with a couple other guys and we went to the hospital. She actually met me at the hospital, which there's something really comforting about having your significant other that you've promised to do life with, be with you, you know, after pretty quickly after something like that. And you know, I, I can't give great enough props to like my command staff for making sure that was the reality of the situation that they got her, they got her there as soon as possible. Um, Cause it meant a lot yeah. to me to like, to be with her and for her to see me and for her to relax. Cause I could tell that she was tense as well because being a police officer's wife is a really difficult thing. It's not like an accountant, you know, she has to worry about everything that I do at work and you know, we work crazy hours and I do crazy things at work. I mean, I kept for a long time, I kept a lot of that away from her. You know, I didn't really tell her a lot of the stuff that I was doing because I just didn't think she needed to know. She would just worry. But after this, you know, it's kind of hard to to keep those things from her. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you obviously have to, uh, but you skipped over so many of the details of the story. But I mean, you made it sound pretty clean cut, but I mean, your life was really in, in quite a lot of danger that day. I mean, you were close to not walking out of there. Yeah. You know, yeah. I guess the the reality of the situation is that a little bit better aim and I probably, you know, would have been fighting for my life. Yeah. So, and I don't say that to, you know, make people feel bad for me or whatever, because I'm not a victim of this. I, you know, I'm a police officer. I signed up for it. It's part of, I knew that there's a likelihood that something like this may happen. And I don't say that for like sympathy, but you know, that's the reality of the situation is that the, yeah. me and the guy standing directly next to me, it could have been a really, really bad day. Yeah. First of all, dude, I know we're like best friends here, but I'm just so grateful for guys like you, you know, that get out there and are willing to step in situations so that the rest of us nerds can sit behind desks and record podcasts and not feel, not feel as like we're in danger because of the brave men and women who suit up every day to do that. So I'm just really grateful for people like you. Appreciate it. Brother. Um, yeah. It's not talked about a lot because you, <clears throat> by God's grace, you did walk out of there alive. And so you got to go home to your family. If the opposite were true, that probably would have turned into a whole different news story and your wife and kids would have gotten a lot of attention, but really it kind of just gets pushed away pretty quickly from a news standpoint because you did walk out of there alive. But I know you personally, and I know that like you don't just mentally and any officer who's involved in a shooting doesn't just mentally wake up the next day and be like, Oh, that sucked and move on with you. Like it's a really big deal. Can you talk to us about like just the mental place where you were spiritually as a man, as a husband, as a dad, like, yeah, I take kind of a step back. I want to talk about, I think, because the best way that I can relate is, so after all this is said and done, you go to the hospital, you go back and go to the police department and you have to do some things afterwards. And um, you sit down with an attorney and so on and so forth. And, you know, I sat down with my attorney that night and her exact words to me were, I just want to let you know, you're a suspect in a homicide. The state's going to come after you. You're going to be civilly sued. And when you think it's all over, the federal government's going to come after you. (laughs) Jeez. And the first thing that came to my mind was my kids' faces. You know, it's like I thought about my kids and like and my wife and like what position did I just put them in? As a police officer, you never you think you're the good guy, you know, like, well, I was the good guy. 
this happened and it's unfortunate and I didn't want it to happen, but it had to happen. And I didn't choose the outcome of this. Somebody else did. And I just did what I was supposed to do. Right. Like I've been trained to do all these things. I did what I was supposed to do. And, and to hear the reality of the situation is like, okay, well now this is just the beginning of this process. And now my kids have to go through this process with me. And my wife has to go through this process with me. I mean, it's really hard to swallow. It's probably one of the three times in my entire law enforcement career where I thought, did I make the right decision doing this job? Like, did I make the right decision? Like, was this all worth it? Like, did I make a bad decision? Did I put my family in harm's way? Did I put my wife in harm's way? Your decision to be an officer. Yeah. In general. Yeah. Yeah. Did I, did I put them in a bad spot? Like, you know, I, I work just outside of St. Louis and I think everybody knows that, you know, Ferguson is just outside of St. Louis and we seen that whole process break down and, you know, I was a cop then and I watched that whole process happen and I seen the things that those men had to go through and the families had to go through and without being political or whatever, those people are human beings, you know, those cops are human beings and those, their wives and their kids are all humans. And you think about your kids and your wife and you're like, man, this is pretty unfair to them. You know, this is like a super unfair position that I put them in. So that whole process happened. And that night I went home and my wife was super supportive. You know, Kate, she's the bomb. And she was just kind of there. She didn't really say too much because I don't think she knew what to say. And, you know, we laid down in bed and that night that the whole process just was replaying in my head over and over again. You know, um, now I know that's like a normal reaction, you know, like that your brain is almost trying to put pieces together. When you're in a high stress environment like that, your brain goes through the process of trying to put things back together in a certain order the way that they should be. Almost like a dog went imprint. It's like what your brain is like, okay, you've been exposed to this super stressful thing. Let's make sure that we react the way that we're supposed to the next time better. Mm. So it's trying to put all the pieces together. It's trying to put that puzzle back together. But at the time I didn't realize that, you know, I thought I was like losing my mind. I was like, man, I've been, I I laid in bed for about, I want to say about three hours and just for that three hours, man, I just couldn't sleep just replaying in my head over and over again. And I think the craziest part is that was the first time in my entire life I prayed like, I feel like people in third world countries probably pray. Mm. I prayed. Like a desperation? Or what do you mean? In desperation, yeah. yeah. I prayed in desperation. I prayed like I'd never prayed before. I had a conversation with God like I'd never had a conversation with God. I was vulnerable. I was open. I was like surrendering to him. And it was like one of those things I just felt like the day caught up to me. And like, I felt like, oh my goodness, I'm like, this thing's like playing in my mind and I can't get it to stop. And I just want to go to bed. I just want to go to bed. Tomorrow's a new day. Today has been too much. I need to sleep. And I just couldn't. And I was just praying like, God, give me peace. Give me wisdom. Like, help me through this process. Like, I surrender to you. Whatever you want to happen in this situation, it's all yours. But I need you with me right now. Like, I need to feel you. And I had the most spiritual experience that I've ever had in my entire life. I felt like a a level of peace that I can't really explain. Mm Mm-hmm. I felt like I had like a legitimate conversation with God. Mm-hmm. Now that sounds really weird. And you know me personally, I'm not like, I don't over-spiritualize things. Uh, that's just not who I am. I'm Like I said, I'm skeptical at my core. So when people tell me stories like this, I'm like, no, I did. You know what I mean? Like, no, yeah. no. But, you know, it, it happened to me. You know, I had that real conversation with God and I felt like God like put his hands on me and, and gave me a level of peace that was pretty unexplainable. And I went to sleep. You know, so the next day I woke up 
And uh, I walked out into the living room and I looked at my wife and we both had the same look on our face, which was like, what's next? What do we do from here? Like nobody prepares you for that, right? They don't tell you this is how you're going to feel and these are the things that you're going to go through and you're going to have these emotions and, you know, you're not going to be able to just be around your kids. You know, like my wife was supposed to work that day. So there's like so many moving parts and both of us, I'm a pretty A-type person, you know, and like I'm really into having control of situations, you know, like (laughs) I think that's, you know, part of being a police officer as well is like you want to be in control when chaos arises, you want to take control of a situation. And, you know, I think Kate and I both felt completely out of control of the situation, knowing that you're, that my life and her life and our kids' lives are in the hands of, you know, people that I've never met before that don't know me as a person. The, the political climate that surrounds law enforcement is difficult at times. So knowing that so many different things could happen kind of led to anxiety and stress that I'd never really experienced before. Um, I'm a pretty, like, I'm not a very anxious person. I'm really... to that. <laughs> super laid back. I do a fairly good job of putting my problems that I can't control on God. You know, like things that I don't understand or I can't control. Like I... I do a fairly good job of kind of giving those to God and understanding that God has my back and that no matter the situation at the end of the day, like salvation is the end goal. So if I just stay committed to that path, that's good. And the rest will kind of figure itself out. But, you know, I experienced true anxiety for the first time in my life. Um, I apologize to Kate, like probably a hundred times after this, because she's a far more anxious person than me and she suffers with anxiety. And I always kind of had that like idea of like, Hey, uh, get over it. You know, it'll be all right. Like, talk to God about it. It'll be okay. You know, everything's going to be fine. So I kind of, you know, kind of got to experience what she lives with on a a normal basis. And Mm. it got so bad. You grew in empathy. Yeah. Yeah. It got so bad that I remember waking up in the middle of the night and I thought I was having an allergic reaction to my shampoo or like my detergent or something. My body was just covered in hives. Mm. And Kate's a nurse and she's like, babe, you're having, that's your body's reacting to like, being anxious like you're having like a reaction to how anxious you are and i was like no 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 i'm not anxious i'm fine <laughs> and we got like a new detergent we're gonna detergent. yeah I'm like yeah. Well, did you get new i did i asked like did you get new detergent what's going on yeah. we're not supposed to have scented detergent i have sensitive skin you know so I, we went through that whole process and you know nothing changed to me and it was just i was having a i was having a real reaction to like the stress in my life that i had never really experienced before it was like a super it was a eye-opening experience to me um mm. It's crazy how God wired our bodies in such a way. We, I, I had a buddy on recently that we talked about that. It's like we always separate like mind and body, soul and body, but it's just like the way that God integrated all that, that your body's literally giving you signals like, hey, something's wrong under the hood here. Yeah. There's some, like, there's some real serious things going on. Yeah. Kind of, you say under the hood, I, I kind of attribute like the amount of RPMs that mm-hmm. your car is up. You know, on a normal day, you're, you as a human were operating at like, I don't know, 1500 RPMs, right? And as a police officer, you go on a call and maybe you rev up to 4000 RPMs and that's pretty normal. You know, we're normally, we operate at that level where we're a little bit more alert than most people, but still, you know, not over, overboard. But, you know, when you go through a situation like that where your life's really on the line, you're at like 10,000 RPMs, man. You've maxed it out. And all of the next week's, is trying to get back to that like homeostasis, like mm. trying to get back out of that cycle when your body's reacting to that stress is trying to get back to that like, okay, get me back down to 1200 RPMs. 
Mm. You know, I, I just need to get back to 1200 RPMs and all of the injuries related to that stress are keeping you at four five, six, seven. you know, some guys, you know, just, they just relive that over and over and over again. You know, they yeah. never really get out of that cycle. Yeah. I want to talk about like how that propelled kind of this next season of life for you, but just to like close the loop on that. So you ended up going through all the investigative stuff that's required of any officer involved shooting. They reviewed all footage and I imagine doorbell footage and body cam footage and all that stuff. How did that turn out? Yeah. So they, uh, we all wear body cameras now. So they took all of our body camera footage. They took surveillance footage, witness statements, everything else. I had like a whole response team that comes out and that's all they, that's what they do. It's just investigate, critical incidents and officer involved shootings. So they got all the evidence, uh, prepared a statement. The other guys involved prepared a statement. That was a weird thing is sitting across from an investigator giving your statement. Mm. It's really bizarre for me, you know, because once again, you're normally on the opposite side of that table. It's a real weird thing is just felt odd. And after a couple weeks, I think it was three weeks or so right before Christmas, I got word from, a prosecuting attorney's office that everything had been cleared, that uh, it was a justifiable homicide. And, you know, it just went through that whole process of, you know, it was submitted to the federal government for review, I think. And that was all good. And there has been no civil lawsuit on the family. The family actually sent a letter, which was probably the most mature thing I've ever seen in my life. Gracious. Yeah. Yeah. Just, I can't believe I moved past that part, but that was another thing that gave me a humongous level of peace, you know, it was just knowing, you know, I've never been able to communicate with those people. And if I would, I would give them probably the biggest hug in the world. Mm. Um, Cause I've, you know, it, it probably was a really difficult day for them, you know, and I hate to be the guy who had to be involved in that, but I felt like God put me there. I'm not sure why or what, but you know, they sent a letter and kind of just told us not to second guess ourselves that we made the right decision. And, you know, it's the fact that they just were willing and able to be so vulnerable and to, and to be so gracious and yeah. to have enough understanding to look past their own personal feelings, which I'm sure they were grieving. Yeah, totally. Um, hey guys, hope you're enjoying this episode so far. One of the things Matt and I are talking about, we're going to continue to talk about on this podcast episode is just how important it is for you to be connected with like-minded men. That's one of the biggest goals for us at Dad Tired. Actually, one of my goals for the next year is that every single listener in the United States, we're going to start there, would be able to type in their zip code and within 100 miles of where you live, you can find a Dad Tired meetup happening near you. We're working on figuring out how to raise up leaders and get all the technology in place to make that happen. It's a big task, but we feel like that's what God is calling us to. If you want to help us do that, you can go to dadtired.com forward slash donate. We do have a donor in the month of December who is matching every single donation up to $30,000. We've raised about 6000 so far, so we've got a long way to go, but we would love your help in helping us get to that goal. Again, you can go to dadtired.com forward slash donate. We'll jump back into today's episode. It was just so unfair to them. You know, it sucks. It sucks for them. Mm-hmm. But the fact that they were able to do that and... It meant the world to me, man. Yeah. And I know it meant the world to the other guys involved as well. Yeah. So. Huge gift. You guys ended up coming back to our house. <laughs> yeah. Just keep coming to our house, which 
the doors open all the time. Yeah. You guys ended up coming back a year later and spend some time. We spent some time together as a family. And I remember during that time you were like, as a family, you guys were just wrestling through, like, I feel like God has something for us. I, I feel you didn't use these words, but I could tell like the spirit of God was like poking you, like just like yeah. annoying you almost like there's something, I'm going to put something inside of you that you don't even know is there yet. And you're like, what is this feeling, Jared? Is like, like, am I supposed to be a pastor or going to ministry? Am I supposed to help people? Like, I know what I felt when I was going through that crap and it sucked so bad. It was lonely and confusing. And I remember we were sitting on our couch talking about this. You guys stayed up late with us and talked about this. And then we went to church and you guys were having breakfast. I remember getting a text from your wife. Uh, we were in a group text and she said, like, I feel like God just gave us the most crystal clear answer that we've like ever had in our life. And you ended up coming back over to our house and sharing this idea with us. It was like insane. It felt like God literally, I don't know how much more clear he could have made it other than like writing it out and like sending it to you as a note, you know, but he just put this like vision on your heart of what was next for you guys. So anyway, I'd like to spend the, the last few minutes of our time together just like talking about how all of that ended up shaping what you're doing now. I mean, you're still an officer, but yeah. what Yeah. What else are you doing? So, man, this is so funny that this is the way that it all broke down, but I had really felt like, it's really weird. So the next youth camp that we went to after you came, I did a teaching series with our kids about David and Goliath. And this was kind of the onset of it. And it was almost like a, it wasn't like the normal, like, I'm going to teach you about David and Goliath. It was kind of like, the teaching series was about how God prepared David before he ever realized that he was prepared. You know, he, he talks about how God had saved him from the jaws of the lion and the bear. And he goes through that whole process and like, God didn't forsake me then. He won't forsake me now. Like, I can do this. And I don't know why I taught that series. I don't remember exactly what was the onset of it or why I did it, but it kind of stirred something up in me that was like, okay, well, what was God preparing me for as we went through this? God has never forsaken me. I was involved in this thing. How can I use this for the kingdom? And to be 100% honest, my first reaction was like every 20-year-old, to 30-year-old man, I was like, I'm going to start a podcast. You know, like I want to do a podcast and I'm going to interview guys who've been involved in officer-involved shootings and trying in the stigma surrounding just being okay and not talking about your emotions and everything else. And my wife you know, being the better half was like, no, was like, no, you did not go through all of this just to start a podcast, you know, nothing wrong with the podcast, Matt, just to yeah. put that yeah. out there. <laughs> <I'm> a big <laughs> podcast fan, but I, I agree with you. Yeah. There's, there's more to She's be. She's like, something's there. bigger than this, you know, like yeah. something else is going on. And do we wrestle with it for a long time? And I just kept praying that like, I'm trying to let go of myself here and I'm trying to do what you want me to just make it obvious to me, you know? And I did, I struggled like, man, was I, am I supposed to get into ministry? You know, I've been preaching at my church for a little while. My pastor has like invested in me a lot. So I started preaching and like that whole process of going to that, uh, you know, officer involved shooting really drew me close to God, especially that experience that I had was like, it really drew me close, you know? Yeah. So I felt like I needed to do something. So I was just wrestling with it for a long time. And like you said, man, we went to breakfast one day and my wife's so much smarter than me we were just kind of having a conversation and I was like, babe, I feel like I'm supposed to do something. Like, I don't know what it is, but I feel like we're supposed to do something. And she goes, what if we did like a nonprofit? I was like, bing, you know, the bells all went off. We decided to start the 1078 project over, I don't know, 
remember what that place is, like the French bakery or something in South Carolina. <laughs> I can't remember the name of it, but it's something like that. Their food was delicious. But we decided to to start a nonprofit over some really good breakfast. And then, you know, the wheels just started turning, man. And again, it wouldn't have been possible without you. You like kind of guided me through this process. Been a giant mentor to me. But we started the 1078 project and our goal is to intervene in guys and officers in their families' lives within the first 24 to 48 hours after being involved in an officer-involved shooting to provide mental, spiritual, and financial assistance to them and their family as they navigate like the difficult time that surrounds the officer-involved shooting. I love it. And it, what was crazy about that is you had breakfast, you texted us that, you came to our house, told us the idea. I'm like, dude, that's it. Like, that's it. You got to run with that. From that, that wasn't even... I don't, was it six months ago? Like, I don't remember. Something was, like that. <laughs> it was recent, but the yeah. amount you've all, you went from that breakfast to now you are a legitimate nonprofit 501c3, like verified tax ID numbers, all that done. You're completely set up, like, not just like technical stuff and legitimate stuff that you have to go through to. Yeah, we're like fully verified. operational now. Yeah, you're fully operational to the point where you have already helped several officers who've been involved in an officer involved shooting, which is just incredible. Pretty crazy to me, man. But one thing that God gifted me with, man, is if my heart and my mind is set on something, I'll run through a brick wall to make it happen. You know, that's just who I am as a person. And this is my passion now. I've experienced this. I've went through it and I realized how alone you feel and how unprepared you feel. And my goal is to ensure that no other dude has to feel that way. You know, and, you know, we've set up a pretty solid process of getting in contact with these guys and making sure that they have all the information that they need about what the common stress reactions are. You know, my wife and I write them a personal letter. My family gives them a a card. They get some financial resources to make sure their significant other can take time off with them. They got dinner donated by some local restaurants to make sure that they don't have to worry about food that night. Gift cards for, you know, food for an entire week. They get some of our merch and first responder coffee company donated coffee and counseling yeah. right they don't they, yeah. they get some, they're, they, they get, get offered counseling if they need some counseling yeah so we partnered with counselors um and the counselors do pro bono work for our organization so them and their family are allowed to see counselors uh for absolutely free I and mean, if they build a relationship with the counselor and they want to continue to see that counselor we partnered with another nonprofit called first responder wellness that pays for long-term counseling options and we got counselors that do emdr to make sure you know that's like emdr is like the the probably one of the best things out that they have for processing traumatic incidents. Hmm. So our counselors do EMDR. They're all directly related to law enforcement. Um, one is a former cop who was shot in the line of duty and involved in an officer-involved shooting. Another one, her husband died in a car accident as a police officer, like on his way home from work. So she's a widow of a police officer. The other one's been working with law enforcement and first responders, firefighters, and, uh, and paramedics for like 20 years. So they're all directly related to the law enforcement community one way or another because we do process things differently and we understand things differently, look at the world through a different lens that a lot of people don't look at. And it's important to me that these guys and their families get to talk to somebody who truly understands who they are, what they are, and what they do for a living. You know, we're doing some really cool stuff next year too. We're sending guys all over the country. We're sending guys down to Florida, just outside of Tampa for fishing trips just a way for us to to give back and allow guys to spend time with other, you know, men that have been involved in critical incidents and officer involved shootings, take some decompression time, get away for a while with them and their family. 
we were doing another fishing trip that's in Missouri. We partnered with another nonprofit to send guys on whitetail hunts. We're trying to send guys down to Florida to do an alligator hunt. So I ain't coming to my backyard and hunt those alligators, but yeah. I know, dude. That's, <laughs> um, we're doing all kinds of crazy stuff. Uh, one thing too, man, is I just partnered with a jujitsu gym who's donating their time and their services to guys to make sure, you know, they can get on the mat and, and roll and better themselves uh, yeah. me- mentally and physically. So yeah, dude, we're, we're rolling in the right direction. Dude, you got, you're doing incredible stuff. What the goal is, what we don't want is officers to be involved in these officer-involved shootings. And like I For said, sure. when they win, win's probably the bad, not the right word. When they come out alive, which is the goal, obviously, we don't want any officers to lose their life in the line of duty. But they oftentimes can be overlooked and just everyone kind of moves on. And yet they're going through some really heavy, dark stuff, as you know, as you personally experience. Yeah. And what we don't want is officers to go through that alone and to start to take a bad situation and just start making it worse mentally, spiritually, relationally, their marriage start to fall apart. They don't feel like they can function at work. They're not the parent that they were before. So you're really intervening. It's not just like practical stuff like you, it is practical stuff, but it's also just like, you're really setting them up to not go down. Like I said, to take a bad situation and make it even worse. Yeah. And you know, my pastor and I sat down and we broke down like where your relationship really is with God after you're involved in one of these incidents, like what does God think about this situation and Mm. what does God think about the use of deadly force? And, you know, and that was something that I really struggled with too, is like, okay, well, did I damage that relationship? Because I say this all the time to my kids and to my wife and to my friends, like salvation is the end goal, right? Like that's what we should be hyper-focused on is salvation. And I was kind of bouncing around the idea of like, did something on the earth side of things really just affect my Mm. journey to salvation? And I was like a big thing to me. So there's like information in there about like where your relationship is with God and wow. how this affects your relationship with God. And wow. the big thing is, is man is there's a lot of organizations out there that help guys who have been help men's families or women's families who have died in the line of duty. And that's fantastic. And I love it and I appreciate it. And I hope those organizations continue to grow and prosper and everything else. But you know, the suicide rates of officers are insane. Yeah. The amount of men and women that kill themselves compared to the amount of men and women that are killed by like a felonious attack, so gunfire or something like that, it's like four or five times depending on the year. Jeez. Men take their own lives or women take their own lives. And it's, in my opinion, and this is, you know, Matt talking, I don't have any statistics to back this up. I personally feel like it's because of the traumas that we experience through our job. Yeah. You see the worst in society all the time. Yep. You're forced to do things that you never thought that you would have to do. Um, and unless organizations step up to the plate and we decide that we're going to be that change and we're going to end that stigma, that guy's just suffer in silence, that number's only going to grow. Yeah. Because unfortunately, society's only getting more violent. Yeah. Um, so unless we, you know, unless organizations like 1078, and I'm sure there's other organizations, you know, in different states that are kind of trying to do what we do or doing what we do. Unless we step up and we decide to be that change, it'll never change. Yep. I love what you're doing, man. I feel like I, from the day we met in that lunch line to today, I feel like I've just watched God's hand on you and your family and uh, his, him kind of orchestrating all of this. And again, not just for your good, it's for your good, but it's also for his glory, meaning like other lives are being impacted as a result of how he's using your life. Guys can check out what you're doing, 1078project.com. Did I say that right? Yep. 
Yep, www.1078project.com. Yep. Our uh, Instagram, I think, is the1078project. Yeah, go on there, you guys. Like and follow what Matt's doing. I watched what you 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 delivered, like a gift pack to a family that had just gone through that, and I saw like Legos for the kids and uh, Legos for the kids, food. coloring books for the kids. Yeah. Try not to forget any anybody in the family. You know, this is traumatic for the wife, so we're doing like wife wives groups now, so they have a group of women that they get surround themselves and be in community with and. We're trying to attack it from every angle. We still got a lot more work to do and make it a lot better, but I feel like we're right, doing a good job. really on the right track. Dude. Yeah, you're doing a really so. good job. Proud of you. And dude, we are doing a podcast too. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. podcasts are cool, Kate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, dude. So, the podcast hopefully will be, if it's not out now as you're listening to this, the 1078 Project, make sure you follow on the website and social media because it will be out. You've already done interviews, right? Like, it's it just yeah, a matter dude, they've of, been awesome. It's been so cool. I bet. Yeah, I'm excited. It's been so cool to sit down and talk to these guys. Yeah. All right, bro. Appreciate you. Love you. So grateful for you, man. Grateful God. Love you too, buddy. Thanks, man. Yeah, this has been fun. Yeah, see you, buddy. Hey, guys. As always, I hope that episode was helpful for you on your journey of becoming more like Jesus and helping your family do the same, especially just to hear another brother as he's working out his own journey of trying to follow Christ in the midst of a lot of traumatic things and using that uh, really terrible situation into something beautiful for God's glory and for his good. Again, if you like this ministry, if you feel like it's helpful for you on your own personal journey, we'd love for you to partner with us. You can go to dadtire.com forward slash donate. We are a 501c3 nonprofit. All of your donations are tax deductible. I love you guys so much and I'll see you next week.